Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Good morning. I I ran into a bunch of you that are hoarse this morning. You yelled a little bit too much last night, huh? Going to have to have some time to recover. We need to pray for healing for your voices, right? Uh, it's so good to see you today. Uh, you know, several of us actually spend time uh, together praying over what we feel like the Holy Spirit wants us to do in these messages on Sunday. And it, it can be challenging because there's lots of different needs represented in the room. So many people in different places that we find yourselves in and uh, it, it can be it can be challenging sometimes. Uh, there's actually some wisdom around that topic that Andy Stanley once said. We're actually borrowing some of the ideas for this series from him. Uh, he was talking to a group of pastors one time, and he said, "If you just speak about your weaknesses, you'll never run out of material." So that's what we're going to do this series. I'm going to talk straight out of my weakness to you—a weakness I lived with for years, thinking I was immune to. Uh, but in reality, the older I get, the more self-aware I become, the more I see this issue that we're going to talk about today in myself. And I know lots of guys and women out there who, who like me, they don't think they have the problem we're talking about today. Uh, but the more I work with leaders and the more I work with people in personal growth, the more I see this is an issue that I think touches every single one of us at some level and likely touches every one of us much more deeply than we even realize. The more I live life, the more experiences I have, the more I also realize that not only does this affect me in the negative moments of life, but it actually taints the really good moments of life for me as well. So what's this problem? Simply this. It's the tendency in me to always be looking around me, measuring myself against other people. Now, I can honestly look back at high school and and think, well, yeah, well, I did that back then, those awkward years of pimples and, and gangly and buck teeth and trying to be athletic and when you grow six inches in a year and navigating social skills and all these feelings for girls that start to emerge and trying to figure out what women think and, and even 32 years later of marriage and, 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 and an adult daughter, I, I'm still not convinced I, I know what women think all the time. But you remember those high school awkward conversations with girls trying to be cool? And then realizing afterwards you just were anything but cool or smart. It was really just kind of not awesome at all in that conversation. But that's something you grow out of, right? I mean, you grow up and that isn't supposed to be a factor in our lives. I'm successful, an adult now. I, 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 I should be beyond measuring myself with other people. I'm, I'm mature now. I'm not prideful, egocentric. I'm not insecure. I mean, who, what strong person wants to take on that label of insecure? I mean, no, no way. I, I'm grown up. It doesn't matter what other people think of me. I don't compare myself to others. That's immature. But then I realize that all I'm doing in those statements that I talk to myself about and tell myself is I'm comparing my tendency to compare myself to others to others' tendency to compare themselves to others so that I can feel better about comparing myself to someone else. And that's a problem, isn't it? It's a definite problem. I'm still trying to measure up, comparing myself and how I measure up to others, whether it's arbitrary standards or whatever, is a trap 
And I think all of us at some level get caught in this trap, and it's the trap of the bigger-er in life, which is the title of today's message. In high school, I was a relatively athletic person, and I realize that's really kind of funny And when you're talking about comparing each, yourself to others because I can't get away from using comparison words and measurement words. Relatively, relatively to what? Well, relative to whatever athletic talent was in Keister High School in southern Minnesota, which probably isn't that great from a town that named itself after the Derriere and, and has a famous Preparation H commercial filmed in the town, which is a really hilarious commercial if you haven't seen it. You know, if you grew up in that town, you're used to jokes about your own hometown, so you feel like you need to justify yourself in order to measure up. And I, I struggled with what many of us struggle with and, and when we don't compare favorably to other people. I struggled with feelings of disliking people who had a bigger-er than me. I tended to struggle with dislike for a couple guys who were the favorite jocks in my school growing up, labeled the best by other people. As part of my seeking then a bigger-er in my own life, I decided that I was going to pick up a non-traditional sport that nobody played in my community. I was going to play tennis. I know a lot of people have tennis everywhere, but it wasn't everywhere in Keister. I was one of the only people who played. And so when I wasn't working on the farm in the summers, I'd actually play eight hours a day. So one day, Mike... Uh, the best athlete, in my opinion, in the school challenged me to play tennis, saying he could easily beat me even though he had hardly ever played tennis. I liked that challenge. That particular summer, I was working on perfecting a serve that I don't know if it's still called that or what it was, but back then it was called the Australian Twist. So in the air, let me explain this because you need to understand this. To an inexperienced person, the Australian Twist can still look a little bit like a slice serve. So to explain the difference, if you're, if you're serving right-handed to a right-handed player on their forehand side, a slice will come in and it will curve in the air into the ground and keep curving away from them. The Australian twist to the inexperienced player comes in and it curves, looking a little bit like a slice, but when it hits the ground, it pops up and goes straight. If you hit it really good, it may even go slightly back into the person. So, Mike challenges me. We get out to the court and we spin the, the racket and uh, it comes up in my favor and I'm the first one who gets to serve. So my very first serve was about an 85 to 90 mile an hour Australian twist and he thought it was a slice. So he's lunging to get over there and it cuts back into him and it hit him right where it counted. And Mike was down for the count. He didn't get up off that tennis court for 15 minutes. And he never played me again. I got to tell you, it was the sweetest, most satisfying athletic moment in my entire life. And I'm ashamed to say it still is a moment that I really relish today with great joy. How is it... That bringing harm to someone else, even a friend, can bring so much joy. It isn't that anything is wrong with Mike. I liked it. It was, it was overall that he was just far superior than me as an athlete. And I, was, I had to have my moment of glory, my moment of measuring up of one of 1,000 times when I was able to beat him, which entailed me rejoicing in his moment of pain and humiliation. Why is it? 
that we tend to struggle with feelings of disliking those who are better than us, or we are so driven to focus on those very few moments of triumph, those one in 1,000 moments where we were better than them. I think it's this, because it's easier to do that than it is to admit, Ross, you're never going to be as strong, never as tall, never as fast, never as attractive, never as cool with the girls as Mike. Now, some of you are far more mature than I am. You don't dislike people you compete with who have a bigger er than you, yet you know that you still live in this world of measuring yourself to other people, right? It's not just the world we live in. It actually is almost hardwired in us. We're always looking left and right and behind us and ahead of us and measuring ourselves by others, asking questions. How am I doing? Am I acceptable enough, successful enough, cool enough, nice enough, pretty enough, competent enough? Am I measuring up? We all live in this trap of the bigger er. Am I smarter, taller, stronger, wiser, prettier, handsomer, wittier, talenteder? I need to be er. I want more er because that's when I get to feel better about myself. And when you think of others inside of you, I, you tend to probably think, I really like you, but I really like it that I can walk away with coffee and I can feel like you are good, but I am gooder. One way I think you can get in touch with this if you're struggling is, do you ever find yourself on the drive home from parties asking yourself questions or maybe asking your spouse or your friend questions, saying, did I say anything embarrassing? Was I okay in how I talked in that? Was I funny enough? Was, was I interesting enough? Was I good-looking enough or pretty enough? I, it shows, those questions show this drive in you to measure up. We're worried that we're smaller, dumber, stupider, uglier, lesser, not measuring up. You see, if you get married, you, you also tend to get struggled in this in your marriage. You, 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 you first get married and you think they're amazing, they're perfect, then it quickly turns to I want a little lesser of this and a little more of that. Could you be a little cleaner? Could you be a little dressier? Could you be a little more put together? Could you, could you be just a better joker? Could you be a little less embarrassing? And the thing of it is, it isn't really that much about them. It's actually more about you. See, inside we tell ourselves, I I just want my partner to reach their full potential. No, we're wanting them to get a little more of something or a little less of something in a variety of areas. What they look like, what they say, what because that all affects how other people think about me. And then you have kids. And you start measuring yourself and your kids by other people's kids. I, I, I want them to be a little more polite, a little better than the Smiths next door whose kids are such good kids. I, I, those Angel Anderson kids, and you start to think this, those Angel Anderson kids, their parents must be over-controlling over, over because their kids are perfecter than mine and they're probably going to melt down one day because of all that control. So really my kids are better. My kids, my kids are a better athlete than the Cudlow kids. Uh, you know, they're just getting attention because they know the coach. And we start airing our kids. We, our, our youngest this last year graduated from high school and, and in May. And, and this came home to me. I, I realized in that moment the pressure I was feeling of wanting to make my kid be their full potential. 
And I realized how much it's easy from the way the culture around us helps this issue in us come to the surface that, that this pressure to perform and, and my own issues of needing to be a bigger it's so insidious because, quite frankly, I am absolutely astoundingly proud of my kids. And yet, culture still puts that pressure out there. And you constantly think about needing to be the bigger-er when they're actually really doing well, truth be told. See, and then when you see the Smith kids and they, they, they're on the sports team and they start skipping practice and they get in trouble and they lose their starting position and your kid becomes a starter, you actually find, and then when you see the kids who do better on the ACTs and, or your kids do better on the ACTs and the Anderson kids, then, you, you know, you start to, part of you feels fulfilled in the fact that the other kids didn't do as well and your kids are bigger and better than them. It's kind of like me knocking Mike out of the game 38 years ago. What is that in us? I mean, think about it. That's evil. That's wrong. That's embarrassing. We have those feelings. I I mean, we're supposed to be good people. We're supposed to be Christians. We're we're not supposed to hate others and rejoice in the failure of others. If you are uncertain that there's sin in the world, this is proof of sin. These internal, often unvoiced feelings of justification and comparison and celebration in other people's downfalls and failures. And then there's the other side of this, uh, the trap of the bigger er. Some of of you actually have more er in some areas than other people. You are wealthier, you are more successful, you are nerdier, and your accomplishments show it. And even though you might not admit it internally, there's a part of you that's saying, yeah, they're a little heavier than I am. I'm a little more put together than they are in fashion, and and I'm a little better leader than they are, and I'm more superior than they are. And we know we shouldn't feel that or think that, but we we do. I don't have to tell anybody how wrong this is, how unproductive, how self-defeating, how much this drives anxiety, worry, and stress, because we all know that. We instinctively know that. To take this further, there's a small subcategory of people in the world, probably a little bit larger subcategory in our communities that we live in, who don't want more-er. They don't want bigger. They want est. They want biggest and best. I don't want richer. I want richest. I don't want to be well-known and successful. I want to be the goat. I don't want to be happy. I want to be happiest. I don't want my kids to just be good kids. I want the goodest kids. And some of you react to that thinking, well, yeah, but isn't it okay? I just want to reach my full potential. And, and, and I'm really talented. My kids are really talented. They could possibly be the best. So why shouldn't we set that as a goal? See, the problem is not the goal. The problem is not maximizing your potential. The problem is the unhealthiness that is going on inside of each one of us as we journey along that path to our full potential, whatever that is for us. There is an illness in us that God wants to remove so that your journey to that full potential can be so much more fulfilling and enjoyable and purposeful and meaningful and contented and peaceful. Some of you might be thinking, I'm actually not trying to be better than others, yet 
when you look at other people who are richer and wealthier and more successful and their kids are smarter than you, instead you go to the place of saying, it's my fault. You look in the mirror and you determine, I'm not okay. I don't like myself. And the reason you denigrate yourself is you know that you will never be as blank as those other people, whatever it is. You, you know you're never going to measure up. You know you're never going to be as happily married. You know you're never going to have the financial margin of those other people. So what do you do? If you don't get anything else from today's message, get this. It comes straight out of Scripture as far as the idea. I mean, we popularized how it's said, but, but if you sleep through the rest of the message, get this. There is no win in comparison. There's no contentment. There's no finish line when measuring up ever stops. There's no place big enough, high enough, successful enough, good enough where measuring up stops and is finally done. There is no win in comparison. And that isn't a typo because comparison, always trying to have to measure ourselves up to feel good in life, is a sin. Why? Because it is destructive and it's unhealthy. It doesn't matter if you are better than other people, even a lot better. It doesn't matter if you don't measure up and ever, never have any hope of measuring up. There is no win in comparison. In fact, it is deadly and dangerous to be caught in this trap of the bigger-er. Because some of you, if you're really honest, you are in debt up to your ears because you are controlled by the bigger-er. You've purchased cars and clothes and houses and vacation packages and you've done things and the only reason you've done them is because you saw other people doing them and you wanted a bigger-er in your life. You wanted to be happier, sexier, funner, whatever the er is. You wanted that. And some of you are driving your spouse nuts. Some of you are already even having driven your kids away because you're, they're so tired of the err that is coming out of you, tired of trying to measure up. And the reality is, much of our tiredness in life is directly related to this effort in us to measure up. Are you tired of measuring up? Do you want to find a different way to live? This is not just a no big deal thing. This trap of the bigger er always trying to measure up is dangerous. It is deadly. When Jesus was arrested, we see it there even just how deadly it can be. He's handed off to Pilate, the Roman governor, and two eyewitness accounts record that Pilate clearly understood that Jesus was being handed over to him out of envy, out of jealousy, because of the trap of the bigger er. Jesus was what the religious leaders would never have and never be. The crowd was for him. He did miracles and healings that they could not do. This envy and jealousy sent Jesus to the cross. And even Pilate, who saw through it and wanted to set Jesus free, eventually bowed to the bigger er, his desire to secure power and be popular with people. See, it's this core of sin in comparison that is the essence and the driver of much of the sin in all of us. 
You see it in the original sin in the Garden of Eden. In fact, you see it in the wisest man who ever lived before Jesus. He identified the destructive nature of this need for the bigger ur in our lives when he said, if you let this go and you, if you let it continue to be a part of your life, he said in Proverbs 14 that this envy makes your bones rot. There is no win in comparison. There is no end to the trap of trying to measure up other than the end of it rotting your bones, destroying your very life. So what we're going to look at through the short three-week series is this whole topic. What do we do with that and how do we deal with this? And it's a challenging thing to deal with because you need to know how to motivate yourself. We all need to be motivated. You need to know how to encourage good motivation with your spouse, with your kids, with the, with the people you supervise and work with to improve and to grow. See, this message isn't anti-growth. It isn't anti-success. It isn't anti-achievement or anti-becoming better people. The problem isn't being error than somebody else or even est than something. The problem isn't the drive to achieve and the desire to be successful. Something else. So what do you do? What do you do? The Bible has actually a really amazing, profound way of answering this question that we're going to look at over the next three weeks. We're going to start today. In in fact, some of you don't trust the Bible as truth, and you aren't sure about Jesus. And I, I want to encourage you to read the Bible this week. Uh, you don't have to go into the reading the Bible, believing it. I mean, come on, you read and hear lots of things every week that you don't believe. I mean, whenever you look at the news or read the news or hear the news, you, you aren't sure whether you're hearing the truth, and yet you do it anyway, right? Today we're going to wrap this message up by looking at, briefly, Solomon in the Old Testament. Wrap-up doesn't mean we're about to close, but we're going to have it that way, okay? If you've uh, ever been in Proverbs, read Proverbs, uh, or uh, as we're looking at today, Ecclesiastes, Solomon wrote both or edited both, and uh, you will find stuff in there that you actually believe in. Even if you don't believe the Bible, you're going to find stuff in there that you believe. You're going to see stuff that great speakers and authors, that you hear them quoting it. You're even going to find wise words in there that are part of popular songs that you probably have sung or listened to on the radio that you never knew came from Scripture. Solomon, this guy, he had the most Ur and he had the most est of probably anybody in all of history. He built one of the seven ancient wonders. Uh, he wrote the enduring proverbs that crossed cultural and religious boundaries as being wise. He had kings and queens from all over travel to meet him and learn from him. He was the wealthiest person in his lifetime, possibly the wealthiest person in all of history. He had more ur and est than almost anybody can dream of. And in Ecclesiastes 4, he says this, He says, and I saw that all toil, all the er, all the est toil he had done in his lifetime, and I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. See, he's saying, I've watched people, I've been around the smartest, the the, the most talented, the most powerful, the prettiest, the, the, the best artists, scholars, scientists, cooks, craftsmen, all of them. I've been a student of behavior, and what I've noticed is that the biggest motivator in people's achievements and lives is competition, measuring themselves by other people's achievements and other people. And what's Solomon's conclusion? He simply says this, This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind, 
trying to always measure up, comparing yourself to discover happiness, enjoyment, contentment, and love and success. It's like chasing the wind. You just reach for it. You try to grab it. You try to control it, and it continually blows, and it continually slips through your fingers. You never discover enough. You never see a finish line. You never find contentment that lasts or peace or, or never find abiding joy. As many of us have done, we tend to get to that point and we ask the question, so are we to not be competitive? Are we to not strive for doing our best? And Solomon, one of the most successful people in his generation, anticipates that question and that objection. He goes on and say, no, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Solomon is saying, don't, don't think for a minute that I'm telling you not to dream or be ambitious and try to accomplish a lot. After all, Solomon would say, just look at the temple I built or just come to my, come to my treasure room that's got so much gold it makes Fort Knox look like a rural community bank. Solomon is emphasizing there is no win in comparison. And he gets at it this way further, goes further, saying better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. The imagery here is powerful. He's saying it's better to have one hand open, meaning God can put stuff in it and he can take it away, whatever he chooses. It's better to have one handful than two clenched fists hanging on to everything you can get in life. It's better to have one hand open and be content, whatever it is or whatever it's not in it, than to grasp the wind, always needing a bigger ur, clenching that which we cannot ever have enough of. Because if you clench with both fists, there's always going to be something more that you can't grab that comes by every second of the day. There's always more. And Solomon says, contentment, tranquility, is far better than er or even est. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. See, if we just let that thought alone soak in, let it become a part of you, you're already well on your way to a more happy, joyful, peaceful, contented, meaningful, full life. If you let that sink in, then when you are tempted to grab another deal at work, even though if you grab that, it's not going to allow you to continue to have room to love your spouse and grab a hold of your spouse and love your kids, it will change you. If you let that sink in, then when you're tempted to compare your kids to another and drive them for more, or instead you're going to just be able to learn to love and appreciate them for who they are right now before they ever grow, before they are ever err from whatever you want. And in the end, you as a parent are going to discover that you're going to bless them and love your kids far beyond what you can imagine than if you had ever kept trying to drive them to measure up to other people around you. See, the wisest guy in the world said, always living life, pressing for more, never content, never satisfied in the moment, always needing bigger. It's chasing after the wind. But he also uses this word tranquility. I love that word. It's one of those words that just sounds like you think it should feel. Tranquility doesn't, it just sounds good and right. I mean, what if, what if the predominant feeling and emotion in your life was that? Doesn't that sound idyllic? What if you could live from that place of tranquility in every moment of your life? 
You see, the Bible, both in Solomon and Jesus and the whole New Testament, is inviting us to pursue living there. Solomon goes on, he says, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. So I know this is just a really awesome message. You came to church with your notebooks wanting to take notes on meaninglessness in a message on meaninglessness. And yet Solomon really makes meaninglessness profoundly wise and helpful. He says, let me tell you about something else I saw that is meaningless. He said, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother, which, which meant, if you understand the context of that day in this male-dominated culture, this man had absolutely no one to leave any inheritance to. He didn't have anyone he could meaningfully pass along any of his achievements or success to that he loved and cared for. There was this man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes we're not content with his wealth. So here's this guy that Solomon's observing. Solomon's watching him, and he works, and he works, and he works, and he works, and he's never content. There's always more to do. There's always another project to do, another business to, to grow, another business to start, another personal achievement, something else to be learned. And in the midst of all this work, this never-ending work, at the end of his life, this guy that he's observing asks a question that's really important. For whom am I toiling? What am I doing this for? Why do I do what I do? Why do I live like this? What, what is life all about? Why can't I just stop for a minute and really enjoy life? Why can't I retire and be happy? Why, what, what is it in me that keeps me incessantly driving? Uh, why am I doing this? Who? Who am I doing this for? Why am I constantly trying to measure up, constantly comparing and competing? And Solomon concludes this question as well by saying, this too is meaningless. This journey this guy has been on, working so hard all of his life, not answering that core question. And he says, goes further, he says, it's a miserable business. Meaningless, miserable business. It is so easy for us to live right there in meaningless miserable business, missing the heart of what the good is that God wants to bring to our lives, caught in the destructive sin of comparison, trying to always grab more, wishing for one more hour, wanting less distractions, getting angry when somebody distracts us, less, want less interruptions. See, it doesn't matter how much success you've had or, or how much money you have or how smart your kids are or how you did on your ACTs or, or what school you went to or what degrees you have. There is no win in comparison. And all this leads to a really key question. Who or what am I going to use as the measuring stick, the reference point, to tell me I'm okay and I can be tranquil and content? Even again, when I say that out loud, it still feels like that, that question that should have been settled in high school. But the more I live, the more I get to know highly successful older people and highly successful younger people. And, and the more I realize that question is often not explicitly answered and not settled at all in people's lives. Next week, we're going to dive directly into that. What should be our measuring stick be? But, but before I let you go today, just, just, We'll have a little fun. I'm going to stir you up a little more. You know, I'm going to ask you some. I wish we hadn't asked that question, types of questions. Uh, but, but we, uh, you know, we learned in the wisdom series this summer, what's the definition of wisdom? The start of wisdom is what? Anybody remember? Reality. 
And once we address reality, it allows us to grow in competence and navigating that reality or changing that reality. You can't grow from here to there until you know where here is. And the thing that hits me more and more as I grow older is I can deceive myself so easily. I mean, I thought for years this was not a problem for me. The older I get as well, the more I want to live life being a dreamer, being a visionary, accomplishing a lot. But I want to live in that from a place of tranquility instead of pressure and stress. I want to dream. I want to pursue dreams uh, with joy, not from the pressure of proving anything. I'm not talking about being less productive. I want to be more productive. I just want to enjoy the process of that productivity more. And certainly that's what we see Solomon wrestling with, and he's achieving a lot. And Jesus, well, he did enough in three years to change the world, and we still know his name 2,000 years later. And and yet some of us are are stressing and putting so much pressure on us, trying to just get 40 years and, and then retire with the watch. So here's question one. Are you exhausted often from trying to keep up with blank, whatever that is? I mean, be honest. Being on Facebook, do you ever feel like, I'm not keeping up with the fun, with the, with the parenting goals, with the, with the vacations, with the healthy cooking, and it creates anxiety for you? Question two, are you facing financial stress or lack in your life in order to keep up with, with blank? We can blame our financial stuff on a lot of things, but when it really comes down to it, it really comes down to our own drives, our own desires being driven by the trap of the bigger earth. A few years ago, I, I saw this in myself. Uh, because of expenses with kids in college, we decided to cut cable and cut a number of things out. So we, and we didn't subscribe at that point to many streaming services. And, and I was surprised. What I noticed in myself was on Saturdays during football season, I was angry. Because I couldn't grasp with my hand what other people had and what I thought would be really fun by watching the big game because I couldn't see it. For most of us, our financial stress and problems aren't a lack of income or external circumstances. It is there is no win in comparison, and we are trapped by needing the bigger-er. We can't do with the laminate countertops. We have to have granite. We are, it's not acceptable for our kids to share a room, so we have to have a bigger house. And, and we must have the latest TV and gaming or, or whatever it is, which leads us to question three. Do you allow what others have to keep you from enjoying what you do have right now in the moment? Worship team, come on up. We're going to wrap this up fairly quick. Question four is for parents. Do you take time to enjoy who your kids are right now? Or are you pushing your kids to do things and grasp for things and look a certain way because of what other kids are doing? See, your issue, again, isn't, isn't the need for a higher ACT or better school. It's often driven by what's going on inside of you as a parent. So instead of tranquility, just, just loving your kids where they're at right now, you're always stressed how you're going to get them to be er, how to get them to be where they need to be. And some of you know that really well because you grew up with parents who drove you with that kind of pressure and it actually has caused tension in your relationship because they pushed you to perform so much. You know they loved you, but it didn't always feel that way. 
growing up. And yet you find yourself still trapped, pushing for er in your kids and not enjoying where they are right now. Question five. Who in your life, if they stumbled or failed, would you struggle with having feelings of being justified, satisfied, maybe even happy? See, if we can fill in any of those questions with an answer that says, yeah, we're, that question relates to me, we're still caught in our life chasing after wind. And God wants us to grow. He wants you to dream. He wants your kids to grow. He wants to have a fulfilling life for you. But he also wants you to live in the place of tranquility and joy and peace in the process. Would you stand with me as we pray? We're going to pick up there next week. So Lord, we just ask that you would come to us because, God, I know how hard it's been for me to even face this issue and admit it because I like to see myself as stronger, better, less insecure. But God, this runs so deep in all of us at some level. Father, I know you want to bring freedom to us in this area. So I pray even right now as we've just spent the day more talking about this issue and exposing the issue that you would even come right now as we worship and come throughout this week to each and every one of us by your Spirit and you would begin even before we're thinking even maybe better hopefully because of this series that even before we get there that you start to touch us with a sense of peace and a, and a sense of open-handedness and contentment and tranquility. Lord, that our lives would be marked by that kind of joy and peace. So come do that for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.